text this morning will be Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 50. Uh, So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, you can turn there. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide in the seat in front of you, you'll find that on probably page 845. There are a couple of different editions. Uh, But that's Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 50. I'll first read the text and then ask for God's blessing on our time. This is the word of the Lord. This is Jesus talking. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have so richly revealed yourself and your salvation to us on the pages of Scripture. And we plead with you to give us, by your Spirit's powerful working in our hearts, open eyes and open ears to see your glory and to hear wonderful things from your Word. Please show us Christ. Please show us our need of him. Please show us the dangers of hell. Show us the glories of heaven. And please do the work that you mean to do in our midst, whether to save or to sanctify or to comfort. Whatever you, the good shepherd, know needs to be done in each soul, we plead with you to do it in power, that you might be glorified in our midst. Help me to be faithful in my proclamation. In Jesus' name, amen. As we know, this is Memorial Day weekend, and tomorrow we observe, as Greg mentioned, uh, a day of honor for those who have given their life in service to our nation, on the battlefield, on the seas, or in the skies. In his memoirs of serving as a Marine infantryman in the Pacific theater of World War II, Eugene Sledge documented some utterly miserable experiences. Uh, The nature of the conflict in the Pacific regularly brought combatants face to face with horrors that we can't begin to imagine. You've probably heard the well-worn saying, war is hell. Reading Sledge's memoir helps fill in the details of what is so hellish about war. And I'll try to be judicious about the details in this context. But he writes of countless bodies laying decomposed on the battlefield uncollected in the rainy, warm, subtropical weather. As the maggots and the decomposing bacteria did their slow work, the whole battlefield was filled with an almost unbearable, suffocating stench of death. Sledge writes, quote, At every breath one inhaled humid air, heavy with countless repulsive odors. I felt as though my lungs would never be cleansed of all these foul vapors. And he goes on to write of his time in Okinawa, one of the battles he fought. Quote, 
men struggled and fought and bled in an environment so degrading, I believed we had been flung into hell's own cesspool. End quote. When we human beings run out of words to describe depths of horror, we eventually start invoking hell. And as we'll see, connecting hell with the image of the sickening ruins of a battlefield is not a modern new innovation. God himself uses that image in scripture to describe the ruins of eternal judgment. This morning, in his word, we're going to hear Christ somberly warning us against the threat of hell. And while hell is trivialized so badly in our culture, thrown around as a swear word, laughed at as a joke, a deathly dangerous chasm looms on the other side of the railing that is Jesus' gracious warnings to us in the Gospels. And just as Eugene Sledge endured the hellish depths of war, he knew and he reflected on the fact that those back at home could never conceive, they didn't have the mental equipment to understand what he was seeing and what he was going through. And so it can be for us, with the comfort and the peace and the relative safety of this life, one of the greatest spiritual dangers we face is that we would veer straight for the ledge of the eternal abyss, completely oblivious to its threat. Because this deceitful world has lulled us into a false security. Whatever peace we may gain from a casual ignorance of hell, Jesus is coming to us this morning, confronting us for our good to dismantle it. It's not because he's against us having safety and well-being, but because he wants to give us the real thing rather than counterfeits. Our text comes after the disciples earlier in Mark have confessed Jesus' identity as the Christ. Back in chapter 8, verse 29. And after that point, he's been explaining the implications of that reality of his identity as the Christ. Namely, a cross for himself. He talks about that in 8.31, in chapter 9, verse 31. And crosses for his disciples to bear as well. He talked about that in chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. And most recently, he's rebuked two appearances of the pride of his disciples which show that they haven't yet embraced the call to take up the cross and follow him. The first of these manifestations of pride was in chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, when pride drove them into conflict among themselves as they argued about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is not cross-bearing. The second manifestation of their pride was their desire for influence and their desire uh, for control caused them to threaten the faith. They encountered a man, they talk about this in chapter 9, verses 38 to 42, a man who was believing in Christ and doing good works in Jesus' name, but because these 12 disciples, their desire for influence, they, they troubled the faith of this man. The disciples stood in danger of becoming stumbling blocks to his faith. That's what Jesus warned them about in verse 42. So in our text, beginning just right on the heels of that in verse 43, Jesus continues with a similar point. He's still talking about stumbling blocks. But instead of talking about stumbling blocks posed by other people, one person might cause another to stumble, he's now moving it inside and talking about our own hearts, our own lives. What are the stumbling blocks within us? that are a part of us, 
that might get in the way of discipleship. The main idea that underlies all we're going to see in our text is this. On pain of hell, give yourself totally to Christ. On pain of hell, give yourself totally to Christ. We're going to expand on this point by looking at three aspects of discipleship. Three aspects of discipleship that carry us through our passage. I have to warn you, we try to be even in how we distribute these points in a sermon, but this one's going to be very lopsided. The first of these three uh, aspects of discipleship will take up the bulk of the sermon, but then there will be two more after that. Uh, So the first aspect of discipleship, verses 43 to 48, is threats to discipleship. Threats to discipleship. I'll read again these verses. Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus uses threefold repetition. You saw in verses 43, 45, and 47 to make a very memorable and emphatic point. Now he says, enter life in verses 43 and 45, and then he switches in verse 47 and says, enter the kingdom of God. These are synonymous. They're both describing the heavenly reward of those who turn to Jesus and follow him in faith. In other words, disciples. The three body parts that he uses in these three repetitions, the hands, the feet, the eyes, these are all concrete ways of depicting parts of us that cause us to stumble. We're no longer talking about other people as stumbling blocks. We're talking about what we might call the enemy within. The enemy within. What in me makes me stumble? And using these body parts is very vivid. It's like in Proverbs 6.17. God says that the Lord hates haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Of course, it's not the body parts themselves that are to blame. It's us in our use of them. Now, Jesus may have chosen these body parts to represent different faculties, uh, metaphorically, of course. In chapter 7, he taught that all sin comes out of the overflow of our hearts. It's our inner person. But our hands may represent the things that we do. And our feet may represent the places that we go. And our eyes may represent the things that we look at, which also includes the way that we see and evaluate the world and the way that we place value on things. What we treasure... All of these things can be sources of stumbling for us. And you may hear me keep using the word stumble, and you may notice that in the text he says the word causes you to sin in verses 43, 45, and 47. The ESV translators, a translation I'm reading, uh, they're interpreting a metaphor. The word literally means cause to stumble, and there are different ways, slightly different ways of taking that. I think that they're largely on the right track, but a broader meaning, a, a meaning is appropriate here. Uh, The Greek verb simply means to cause to stumble. You see the visual image of somebody going along a certain way and being tripped up and being interfered with on their way. Uh, This verb, Jesus uses this verb elsewhere in Mark, and in the other places he uses it, it's translated not just sin, but falling away. He uses it this way um, in 
chapter 4, verse 17, and chapters 14, verses 27 and 29. It's translated in all those times, fall away. Falling away from believing and following Jesus. I think it's best to take it that way here as well, because that's the consistent pattern. Jesus is talking about anything that threatens the course of our discipleship. Anything that could draw us away from faith in Him. Of course, this includes sinful actions, sinful desires, thought patterns, priorities. It can even include, though, our use of good things. Our abuse of things that God means to be a a gift to us, but we can use them and let them draw us away from total and complete devotion to Christ. Anything that gets in the way. And as I said, chapter 4 verse 17 is a place where this verb of falling away comes up. And if you're with us way back when we were in chapter 4, you may recall what's going on there. Jesus is telling the famous parable of the soils. It's a story about a farmer who sows seeds in four different locations. And the seed that fell on the path was eaten by birds. And the seed that fell on the shallow soil uh, sprouted, but it didn't last The seed that fell among thorns grew up also, but it didn't last and bear fruit because it got outcompeted by thorns. But fourth and finally, the seed that fell on good soil produced an abundant crop. Now I want to zero in on the middle two of those soils because they're describing the exact sorts of dangers that Jesus is dealing with here. The shallow soil represents people, he says, who hear the word and immediately it produces a joyful reaction in their lives. But what gets in the way? He says, tribulation and persecution on account of the word. It's it's outside pressure, persecution. Then the seed among thorns, what does that represent? He says this, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. Now we'll talk in a little bit about the danger of from the outside of persecution. But here in verses 43 to 48, Jesus is warning against those internal stumbling blocks, our desires, our desires for outright sin, our desires for riches, that is a lustful craving for an excess of our material needs. Even again, our desires for gifts that should be things God's made for us to enjoy, but we can turn them into false gods who compete with Christ for our affections. Jesus is using stark imagery in his solution to this problem. He's speaking in shocking terms. What do we do about it? We cut off body parts. This gets our attention. Why Jesus? Why would we do such a radical thing? Of course, it's metaphorical. Why would we do such a thing? Because the consequence of falling away from Jesus is eternal torment in hell. And it's not to say that somehow following Jesus merits our entrance to heaven like we're buying something by our good works. We're buying something by our loyalty to Jesus. You see, hell is what we, the human race, that's fallen into sin and rebellion against God, it's what we naturally deserve. Christ is the only avenue of rescue from hell. John 3.16 tells us He was given so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. He first describes hell in verse 43 as the unquenchable fire. And then after this threefold warning, 
is over in verse 48, he expands on that picture with two images in verse 48. Their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. These are ugly pictures. Worms are part of the decomposition process. And flames also, they're a wasting agent. They destroy. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 66, 24, the very last verse in the book of Isaiah the prophet, which depicts the wasteland of a battlefield where God has defeated his enemies in the future day of judgment. And it's kind of like Eugene Sledge's hellish description of Okinawa, the wake of an utterly devastating battle. But it goes on and on. To say that the worm doesn't die is to say that the undoing and decomposing process lasts forever. It just keeps going. And to say that the flame, the fire is never extinguished, means it never runs out of fuel. It keeps on burning. Now, our natural reference point for death, which is physical bodily death, has a definite end point. When you die, you die. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around a sort of dying that just keeps going on and on. But this is exactly what hell is. It's eternal torment under the wrathful hand of God. There is no escape hatch into heaven. There is no point where you just get lights out, annihilation, and you cease to exist. There is no point where you pay your debt in full and you finally get to leave. Hell goes on and on and on. It's a kind of suffering that no words or images from this world can capture. Worms and flames are offensive and they're off-putting, but they're only analogies. Rest assured, beloved, the reality is far worse than earthly images could capture. Far worse than what we could fathom in this life. Even when we look at the gloomiest and darkest glimmers of it, like in an account like Eugene Sledge gives us of the Pacific War. Jesus is telling us that no loss is as great as hell. So he's calling us to be wise and make the right trade-offs. Do everything that it takes to avoid stumbling. Pay any cost that it requires to avoid hell. Whatever you have to pay, it's worth it. Stay out of hell. Now, for Jesus to address disciples this way, you may be wondering how this fits in with the biblical doctrines of preservation and perseverance. These are glorious doctrines that teach that the true believer in Christ is a new creature, upheld in faith by the mighty hand of God, and can never fall away. This is a source of great assurance and hope for us. We are sure to persevere in Christ, not because of our own power, but because of His. He says this in John 10.28 of His sheep, using this shepherd sheep picture. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you might wonder, well, if, if a disciple can never be snatched from the hand of the good shepherd, why would he warn disciples like this? Well, here's how it fits together. God fulfills this promise of preservation using means. He doesn't just zap us and make it impossible for us to disbelieve. Rather, he uses his promises and he uses his warnings to keep us persevering. Warnings just like what Jesus gives the disciples and what Jesus gives us right here. 
Some who seem to be true disciples who profess faith in Christ, like one of the twelve here, Judas, will fall away and prove themselves never to have believed in the first place. But it's a paradox that if if we believe in Christ, then God wants us to rest assured of his saving love for us that can never go away. And yet he also warns us. But here's the thing. Those of us who are in Christ, who have received a new heart from the Holy Spirit in regeneration, we're the only ones soft-hearted enough to heed his warnings and keep from falling away. That's how he keeps us. So Christian, the threat of hell is real. It's not a disingenuous warning. But if we heed the warnings, and if we persevere in faith, guess what? That shows that you're a true Christian after all. That's how God keeps you by his mighty hand. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 3 verses 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Do you hear means? Means there. Exhort each other. He continues, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Heeding the warning and using the means God has appointed to prevent the hardening of our hearts shows that indeed we have come to share in Christ. When Jesus calls us to lop off body parts to avoid stumbling, he's really expanding on that original call to discipleship. We heard in chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, he, he spoke of taking up the execution instrument of a cross in order to follow him. To have Jesus is to forfeit our claims to owning ourself. In Christ, my life isn't my own. My body isn't my own. My desires aren't my own. My interests aren't my own. My intellect and the meditation of my mind isn't my own. My enjoyment of liberties is not my own. All these things belong to Jesus. And if the way that I use any of these things starts getting in the way of following Jesus, it has to go immediately and decisively. It has to go. Friend, this morning, are you flirting with any threats to discipleship? Some of us may be harboring a secret sin pattern, and we may regret it, we may feel bad about it, but we haven't applied radical means to excise this toxic cancer from our lives. We may be sad about our porn habit, but not sad enough to unplug the internet and put ourselves under intense accountability with trusted brothers or sisters in the church. Is it worth hell? We may be conflicted about how the love of money has caused us to pull back from full devotion to Christ and love for His people, but not conflicted enough to do anything about it. Is it worth hell? Our conscience may nag us about how we're courting the approval of the world, holding back from clearly identifying with Christ and His righteous ways because we're fearful of social or professional costs. The Apostle James tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Is this friendship worth hell? 
Jesus is testing our love this morning. Which is supreme? The kingdom of God or our temporal interests, our comforts, even our physical lives? Friends, apply the test to your own heart. Examine your life. What is affecting your faith and devotion to Jesus? If it causes us to stumble, it has to go decisively and immediately. Right now, this morning, what is the greatest threat to your faith in Christ? Even today, what do you have to do to neutralize the threat? And how will you make sure that the change lasts? Not just the emotional reaction to a single sermon, but making sure it is a turning point of repentance that bears fruit for years to come. You may well need help from others in the body of Christ. This could be a good thing to approach a trusted friend or one of us pastor elders. We would love to walk with you in this. Sometimes surgeons have to remove body parts to save a life. Thankfully, it's not as common as it used to be as medicine has improved over the years. During the U.S. Civil War, if you took a rifle bullet to the arm or to the leg, you lost your arm or you lost your leg. Why is that? Well, as horrific a prospect as losing the limb was, it was far better than losing your whole body to the slow, toxic creep of gangrene, which is what would have happened. How much worse a disease is sin? How much worse a disease is hard-hearted unbelief. God wants the threat of hell to produce a holy fear in us. This is not a servile dread because we're sons, not slaves in Christ. But nevertheless, it's a trembling at the prospect of removing ourselves from the covering of Jesus' blood, which is our only protection from righteous divine wrath against our sins. The doctrine of hell is difficult. We're all wrestling with it, even right now in our hearts. It offends our sensibilities. But when we take evil seriously, we do get a glimmer of how fitting it is. Consider the smothering weight of darkness we see as evil runs amok in the world. Think of thousands of innocent people dying in Ukraine, essentially to feed a single man's monstrous ego. Consider the explosion of pro-abortion outrage we've seen in response to the leak about the Supreme Court's decision they're planning to overturn Roe v. Wade. Consider the news of widespread cover-ups of sexual abuse by church leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. Only a week ago this was announced. Consider the murderous rampages in Buffalo, Nuvalde. We feel the burning sensation of injustice deep in our bones. I'm sure we all have felt that this very week. How much more the Holy One? How much more does He desire to pour out His righteous fury against evil? Yes, He's patient. Yes, He's he's merciful and patient and gracious. But oh, how righteous and how good it is when He pours out His wrath. You see, sin is far too natural and normal to us. We're too insensitive to it, to how bad it is. We're desensitized. We look to the Word of God and we see what He says about what hell deserves or the right fitting response to it. And and for us, we need to let the reality of hell correct our instincts about the sinfulness of sin. Instead of saying, how could God do such a horrible thing to what seems like small sins? We should say, wow, sin really is that bad. 
if this is the righteous response. And oh friends, let's all examine our heart allegiances appropriately with vigilance and jealousy, like the kind of vigilance you'd have if you imagine you're sitting in a full bathtub full of water and there's a plugged-in hairdryer nearby. Imagine the vigilance you'd exercise if, if you're near a gas leak and someone pulls out a cigarette lighter. That's the kind of vigilance and jealousy Christ is calling us to because eternal hell is real. Anyone who hears this text, who hears the words of Christ, anyone who hears this warning, even the sermon we're hearing today, don't let the knowledge of what you rejected haunt you forever in hell. Whether or not this morning you claim to follow Christ, if you are outside the protective ark of Christ, there is nothing but storm and fury outside. And if you heard this word from God this morning and you reject it, how you'll look back over endless ages from now and utterly despise the folly that you showed in this very moment by dismissing the merciful voice of Christ calling you back from the edge, urging you to direct your course away from the flames. But you would not listen. You would not have it. You would not humble yourself. You would not forfeit the cost. You would not bear the cross. You would not die to the world and to your sinful desires. You would not receive Christ as your Savior and the Lord of your life. You would not accept, as Paul says, bearing the loss of all things and counting them as rubbish if only to have the cross and the free gift of Christ's righteousness because you are too hard-hearted and too stubborn and too self-dependent and too distracted. You wouldn't bow your knee to His regal glory and call Him King. Oh, how you'll loathe yourself for ages upon ages as you consider what you could have had and refused. It's only in the perspective of final judgment that the choices that we make in this life will appear for what they truly are. But inside that protective ark of Christ, be encouraged, friends, because we bring unwhole bodies into the life to come, but they won't stay that way. We may have a hand missing. We may have an eye gouged out. Though Our bodies will be resurrected and glorified. Every loss that we sustain for the sake of Christ will be more than compensated in the life to come. This is the exact point he's going to make to his disciples later on in chapter 10. When they, talk, they start talking about all the things they gave up to follow him. He says, don't worry, it'll be more than compensated in the life to come. Knowing We, we know our nature, we know ourselves, and, and we know that it's always more appealing to avoid a near cost even if it's relatively small, than to avoid a far-off cost. This is why we procrastinate. This is why we make poor health choices in our diet and exercise and sleep patterns. This is why we incur crippling debt to keep up a comfortable lifestyle. And this is why Jesus must bring the stench of hell's flames into our very nostrils this morning the maggoty wretchedness of eternal death into the eyes of our hearts. He's doing us a great mercy. Considering the wretchedness of hell, can you imagine any cost of discipleship that would be too great to bear? 
So the first aspect of discipleship is its, its threat or its threats. Moving on to verse 49, we see the second aspect of discipleship, its nature. Verse 49, the nature of discipleship. He says this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Now Jesus is reusing the same image we just heard about of fire, but he's pivoting a little bit. He's using it in a new way. Previously, fire was the judgment of hell. And the same broad point is still at play. He's talking about the necessity of total devotion to him. But here, the image of fire has pivoted, and now he's talking about sacrifice. Salted with fire. That's a really strange phrase to us. It can be mysterious. What's it about? Well, it's a reference to Israel's sacrifices. Where offerings to be burned to, uh, to God as, an, as a sacrifice were accompanied with salt. Uh, Leviticus 2.13 tells Israel, You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So why is Jesus using the image of a sacrifice on an altar? Because again, he's making this point of total devotion. The disciple is like a burned offering, totally devoted to Christ. This absolute devotion to Jesus is a form of worship, just like the sacrifices in the Old Covenant. And it may require loss. Either the losses we just heard about, the losses that come with purification, like cutting off your hand, so to speak, to avoid a stumbling block. Or it could also refer to the losses of persecution, that outside pressures, that that soil, uh, the seed that fell in shallow soil, and the persecution and opposition of the world came hard against that little plant of discipleship. Remember the parable of the soils. Those are the two great threats. The external threat of persecution and the internal pressures of desires that compete with Christ. Think about a sacrifice placed on the altar in the old covenant worship system. Just like that offering that belongs totally to God. To come to Jesus in faith is to come to God with all we have. This is the exact same image Paul uses in Romans 12.1 to describe the whole Christian life as an all-encompassing gift of worship to God. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It says, you who have been won to God by the mercy He shows in Christ, The way you worship God is by putting yourself on the altar as a sacrifice to Him. You belong to Him totally. And this is the logic that underlay the commands and warnings we saw in verses 43 to 48. Because if you'll have Jesus, He will have all of you. If you'll have Jesus, you're as devoted as a sacrifice on the altar. And if you'll have Jesus, and He has all of you, then you'll have to make deep cuts in order to keep yourself wholly His. One of the greatest dangers we face when it comes to encountering Jesus and evaluating His claims is falling into the misperception that we can only give part of ourselves to Christ. We can give Him a segment, a part of us. We can believe in a limited way, maybe just a mental agreement with His claims about Himself. And He'll be our Savior from sin and death. But that's not who He is. 
That's a fictional Christ that we made up by our own imagination. Because he's not just the Savior, he's also the Lord. And to have Christ is to have all of him for all he is. That's what faith is. It's receiving Christ as all he is. As true man and true God. As Savior and Lord. As prophet and priest and king. The Puritan pastor Matthew Henry, you may know him from his Bible commentary, but he also wrote a book of suggested prayers to use in various life situations. And in his prayer of preparation for the Lord's Supper, as part of the prayer, he writes this, I here give up myself to him as my prophet, priest, and king, to be ruled and taught and saved by him. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. None but Christ. None but Christ. What about you? Have you dismembered Christ to create your own customized experience? Resolve today to own Christ for all He is. Savior and Lord. The prophet whose teaching we receive in humility... The priest who secures our access to the Father for eternal fellowship. The King who rules us by His gracious authority. Any so-called faith that divides Christ into pieces and doesn't receive all of Him, receives none of Him at all. Don't leave your seat this morning without resolving with all you have to own the whole Christ. To cast yourself on Him entirely. Because without all of Him, you have none of Him. And without Him, you have nothing. None but Christ. None but Christ. And be encouraged, friends. In Christ, our costly obedience is not wasted. It is worship. It's a pleasing aroma that rises up to God in heaven. And in the last day when it comes time to enter life in the kingdom in full, we will all see, again, the the true clarity will be there in the end. We'll see decisively that Christ was worth more than all we could have given for Him. If we'd had a thousand lives to put on the altar and give up for Him, He'd have been worthy of far more. No sacrifice for Him will finally prove to be a loss. So, Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them, untrue. O while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. We've seen the threats to discipleship, and we've seen the nature of discipleship. Finally, verse 50 takes us to the third aspect of discipleship. This is its fruit. Verse 50 is the fruit of discipleship. Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I don't know about you, but... When I read through this text, I often get confused. It seems like Jesus is kind of jumping from one thing to another. What are you talking about? Well, just like in verse 49, where he he took the image of fire from what he'd been saying before, and he pivoted and said, I'm no longer talking about hell. I'm now talking about sacrifice. 
he does a very similar move in verse 50. He had brought up salt in this, in this sacrificial context in verse 49. And he takes that image of salt and he pivots to a new association. Same physical object, but a different set of associations. But he's still, again, developing the same broad point. Total devotion as a disciple of Christ. In Jesus' day, salt was a useful household substance, especially for preserving food and for flavoring food. I like using salt to flavor food probably too much. Um, It's difficult to pin down a precise association when Jesus uses the image of salt here and in parallel texts in the Gospels. But I believe that the idea is one of a distinctive, redemptive influence in the world. Distinctness as a redemptive influence in the world. He says in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, uh, to his disciples that they are to be salt and light so that they should be salty and shine brightly as God's representatives in the world who even attract worship to God. It's about being different than our surroundings in a way that's good and constructive. So we could call it again, redemptive distinctness. And as in Matthew 5, Jesus warns against the possibility here of salt losing its saltiness. Now if you're just looking at the sodium chloride that makes salt, it's not going to lose its saltiness. But uh, the salt that they got in in this day, Jesus' place and time, they would get it out of a place like the Dead Sea, which was very saline, they would collect water, they would let it evaporate, and they would just collect the deposits that are left. But it wasn't just sodium chloride. It wasn't just what we have, table salt. There were other compounds in there, other impurities, and these could end up compromising the saltiness of the salt. And he's saying, it's kind of obvious, but it's like, once it's not salty, what are you going to do to make it salty? What are you going to add to it to resalt it? There's no recovering it once that's happened. So Jesus is talking about his disciples' distinctive presence in the world as his representatives. We are supposed to stand out. Not just by being different for differences' sake, not just to be weirdos, but as a redeeming and constructive influence. And again, drawing on chapter 5, we're supposed to shine forth the glory of God, our Father, by our good works in a way that compels others to come to him in worship. In verse 50, Jesus brings it to an even finer point by telling them, be at peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The specific way that they're supposed to stand out from the world is by the peace that reigns in their midst. Now, again, it might be a struggle to go, what do all these things have to do with each other? What, what binds them together? What does this call to saltiness and peace have to do with the broader context? Remember the two issues that Jesus is responding to. Back in verses 33 to 37, the disciples were conflicting with each other because of their pride and their desire to be first. Their abandonment of kingdom values led to a violation of peace. In the same way, the next issue he's responding to in verses 33, sorry, 38 to 42, is that the disciples tried to shut down the stranger who was doing good works in Jesus' name. Why? Because they were infected with the spirit of rivalry. And again, conflict stemmed from the fact that they were disciples, not living like disciples. Abandoning the kingdom's values, abandoning saltiness. One of the great ways that this appears is in a lack of peace. 
Part of what it means to give ourselves over to Christ wholly and entirely as disciples is that we are committing to pay the personal cost of peace among ourselves. Now, keeping peace in the civil realm requires paying taxes. We have to use tax money to pay police and judges and military servicemen and women. And in the same way, keeping peace with each other, our brothers and sisters in the church, also requires a tax from each of us. This is a right Jesus is claiming over us. We have to give up our pride in order to lay down our arms in the nitty-gritty of relationships. We have to forfeit our rights in order to absorb other people's violation of them, which we know happens. Colossians 3.13 calls us, Bear with one another in love, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Pay the cost for peace. It means that sometimes we're going to let the other person have the last word, even if they're wrong, because peace is more important than my personal vindication. It means sometimes we have to forgive a repenting brother or sister for that sin they've done over and over. Yet again, when it feels like we're exhausted of of all our resources to forgive that person. This means that sometimes we won't even mention another person's wrong against us. We'll just deal with it between ourselves and God without becoming bitter. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. This means that sometimes we'll see others of Christ's disciples receiving honors that honestly we might think we're more worthy of. And we may even be right. But in Christ's kingdom, the first will be last. So we preserve our salty otherness, differentness from the world through peace. And therefore we put away jealousy and we rejoice from our heart at the honor that our brother or sister is receiving. Isn't peace between Christians beautifully distinct from the way the world is? It's a slice of heaven. Jesus is drawing our hearts away from the hellish pathway of sin into what is the foretaste of heaven that we exhibit in our brotherly peaceability and love as his people. This is all part of giving ourselves totally to Christ. Friends, on pain of hell, give yourself totally to Christ. We receive the whole Christ for our whole life and salvation. We're not making a transaction. We're not earning our way into God's good graces. We're simply receiving Jesus for all He is to save us and to rule us. It means that we wage war against the forces in our own hearts that would compromise our discipleship. It means that we consider our whole lives a gift of worship on the altar to Jesus. All of our obedience, all of our trust, all of our resistance of temptation, all of our standing firm under the world's opposition rises to heaven as a fragrant offering of praise to God. It means that we strive earnestly for peace among the company of disciples, the church of Jesus Christ. Because we belong totally to Jesus, we're willing to bear relational losses and we're willing to let others be honored instead of us so that our kingdom distinctness stands out against the backdrop of the world's darkness the world can have its temporary safety the world can have its self-indulgence 
The world can have its personal autonomy. The world can have its pride and its quest for greatness. The world can clutch its fading treasures all the way into the flames of hell. But for us, none but Christ. None but Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these sobering and yet gracious warnings about where we stand if we don't have Jesus. Every one of us in varying ways and in all sorts of occasions and circumstances, we are all sinners before you. And without Christ and his covering, his work on the cross as our substitute, we are vulnerable to eternal righteous judgment. Oh, Father, we pray that you would open up all ears in this room to hear the gracious warning of Christ. That the lost would come face to face with the path that they're on and that they would, by your grace, be turned away into life in in trusting Jesus. And we pray that disciples, we who trust your son already, would have a right trembling and a right holy fear and a right vigilance as we look at our lives that we would jealously protect Christ's supremacy in all things. And oh God, may we be a people that have an increasingly sweet and heavenly peace that binds us together in love as we each pay the costs to love one another. May you be glorified in our midst. All in Christ's name we pray. Amen.